welcome back to Exactly. This is season two of the podcast. I'm so excited to be doing this all again. This podcast is all about giving people a permission slip to follow their curiosity. It's an invitation to ask the hard questions, to have a laugh. I'm still figuring this shit out along the way myself. As with everything that I do, my main mission with my art and my writing and my podcast is just to connect women, to connect queer people. I love the idea that these conversations might be happening in your bedrooms, you might be listening to it at work. I recently met someone at one of my book signings in Liverpool for the promotion of my novel Girl Crush and these three girls came up to me uh, in the queue to sign their books and they all told me that they listen to Exactly Podcast when they are on their lunch break and they just play it out loud in the cafe while they're cleaning the coffee machine. So if you're listening to this, shout out to you. I hope you're listening to this episode. Uh, That made my day and it just spurs me on to keep doing it. I just love that you're all so engaged with these conversations. This season, I'm just gonna be continuing to explore the themes that I wish I'd learned in school, from following your intuition, to learning about emotional abuse, to talking about sexuality. I think this stuff needs to be more accessible. And I love the idea of having tough conversations laced with joy as well, because I think that a lot of the time these conversations can seem very overwhelming and like you need to have read these books or have gone to university and studied gender studies to even talk about gender and you just you don't you don't need to have any degree you don't need to have read any books to talk about this stuff your curiosity is enough and every fifth episode you get to take the mic in the call-in episode so if you want to be a part of it and ask me and my brilliant guest experts a question you can send me a message or a voice note via our podcast whatsapp number that's plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five And on our first call in for season two, we're going to be talking about money and finance. So if you have any questions on money, savings, whatever the fuck you want to ask, you can ask me and my expert guest and we're going to be covering it all. And if there's any particular topic that you want us to cover in one of these call in episodes, please do get in touch and let us know. I always love hearing your suggestions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So today I'm going to be interviewing the incredible Natalie Wynn, who you may know by her online moniker, ContraPoints. She is someone that I've been gagging to speak to, so much so that when I watched one of her YouTube videos, maybe a couple years ago or a year ago, I made notes for just in case one day I somehow happened to interview her. 
She is so incredibly clever and sharp and fabulous and hilarious at the exact same fucking time. She's best known for her long-form videos on YouTube where she dissects and critiques online culture and internet discourse with such style and depth. It's really incredible to watch. Her videos are endlessly entertaining and fascinating, drawing on her background in philosophy, referencing people like Plato and Nietzsche alongside SpongeBob fucking SquarePants. Natalie really gets to the heart of what motivates us and drives us as human beings by analyzing some of the darkest and weirdest corners of the internet, from incels to cringe to JK Rowling and to envy, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. Natalie, thank you so much for coming onto my podcast to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask you so many questions about your work and all of the themes that you talk about in your incredible feature-length YouTube videos. But first of all, I'm going to ask you my quick-fire questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. I'll do my best. Okay. What's one thing that sets your soul on fire? That sets my soul on fire. Yeah. A glass of wine and a good book. Okay, okay. I saw recently on your Instagram that you were rereading Twilight. I've also done, <laughs> I've yeah. also done yeah. the same recently. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people seem to be revisiting Twilight. I've yes, noticed. I know. Yeah, I know. Reading, everyone's doing Twilight. I feel like it used to be one of my guilty pleasures, and now I'm just so open about my complete infatuation with it, especially with I, the soundtrack. <laughs> I think you might have just summarized what it is. When we were teenagers, it was like this cringe like thing that you have to pretend not to like or whatever and now yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of women suddenly have this sense that actually being like other girls is not really the worst thing you can be and so yes. there's this like willingness to like engage with this stuff and just enjoy it this time <laughs> yes absolutely like you don't have to pretend yeah. that you weren't completely obsessed with everything going on yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's like a healthy revival yes okay yeah uh so the next question what is the last photo you took I think it was a it was a mirror selfie in an art museum oh. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Uh, and that's that's a very pretentious answer. <laughs> I, was in, I was in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia uh, Art Museum and they have this like reconstructed 18th century room with like mirrors everywhere. Oh, okay, <laughs> amazing. So the next question, what's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you? I think people are expecting that I'm going to be a very like sort of extroverted like type A energy and because I, in my videos, I like pretend to be that. Okay. But it's all a lie. I'm, I'm, I'm like really shy. <laughs> okay. The next question. Finish the sentence. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to. Using social media in a way that isn't like some kind of pathological ego trip, which okay. I think is the default way, by the way. <laughs> okay. And when you say as a pathological ego trip could you expand i know it's quick fire but i'm really invested in this this explanation so twitter is my my app of choice and i think that on twitter there's this there's a strong urge to defend yourself right because you often feel attacked on twitter it's kind of mm. what the website's for there's yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's quote tweets for a reason it's so that people can dunk on you i feel like i i wasted so much of my early experience like getting an audience like in in defense of myself and I feel that Oof. a much more like peaceful way to do this is to just just simply let people be wrong about you so do you find that you <laughs> you don't respond and you don't quote tweet and you don't defend yourself on twitter anymore or do you find that you've that's, um, the, that's the work in progress okay okay for anyone who doesn't know uh about your video essays can you talk through what made you want to start them on youtube and what 
took you to the platform in the first place? Well, I am a millennial. I was born in 1988. So I was in high school when YouTube came into existence. Mm -hmm. So I immediately loved it. What made me start wanting to get serious about making videos was it was 2015, 2016. And commentary YouTube, I guess we could call it, mm-hmm. got very right wing. So in the in the US, this was like the beginning of Trumpism. And I feel like it came to YouTube before it came to the White House in a way. I mean, I felt alarmed, I guess, by the way that things were like rapidly escalating into this like pretty far right, like hateful, anti-feminist, anti-Black Lives Matter, anti-LGBT culture on the on the platform. And I thought at the time I, I kind of had a, a lack of other things to do in my life. So that's that's the other factor, right? I, I mean, I think I, I dropped, I was in a PhD program that I had dropped out of and I was uh, driving Ubers at the time. Yeah. Wow. So, what, what were you studying in your yeah. PhD? Uh, philosophy. Okay. Yes. Yes. You're, of course, you're an ex- ex-philosopher, you've said online mm-hmm. before. And what, what I love about your videos is that they are, you've never compromised on your style. You've never compromised on theatrics. And I really love that you have a way of making these enormous subjects that can either, either feel overwhelming to talk about or cancelable to even talk about. And you put them in a format that's engaging and accessible. And I feel like people need to be entertained if they're going to even entertain an idea that is foreign to them. We need to make them accessible and interesting to get people interested. I think I'm like that myself. Like as an audience member, I'm easily bored. I don't like being sermonized at. I don't know. I wanted to see more communication that was to sort of cater to that kind of audience, which I think is a big audience because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, they don't want it to feel like medicine. You, you you want to feel sort of excited or engaged with what you're listening to. And a way to do that is to make a big spectacle out of it or mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to, you know, use comedy. I feel, I feel like you give so much with your videos. What do you get from creating this content? I, I always reference your video on cancel culture. Was creating that video cathartic for you? Are all of your videos cathartic for you? Like, is it a way of processing? I think that one in particular was cathartic. It came from this place of like, I need to say this. I think in part because it, it had sort of been happening with me for, for years at that point mm-hmm. where people take the worst possible bad faith interpretation of what you said and then use that to like make some more like general condemnation of you which they then put on blast and insist that everyone else uh you know disowns you basically until you get sort of used to it which I feel like I finally have it is kind of a terrifying experience like you feel like you're being ostracized Mm. I don't know for most of human history like being rejected by your community is a death sentence. And so we sort of have this like visceral terror or and anger reaction to it that it's pretty hard to like train yourself to to, to recontextualize and to say to realize this isn't actually that big of a, de- a deal. And if people are mad at me on Twitter, that's okay. Yeah, that there's so much yeah. more courage that people have online to act out in those ways that they would never yeah, do in person. Exactly. I think I've read um So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Bronson and he says yeah. that it's akin to like actual physical pain. Like if you spilt coffee on yourself, it alerts the same receptors in the brain as to when you're being isolated and excluded from your peer group and that socialize social isolation is actually really painful. Yeah, it's very distressing and oftentimes like it's it, there's the isolation aspect and then there's the kind of like guilt and condemnation aspect where a judgment has been passed and like yeah. it's not easy to respond to that with like a calm and ironic attitude 
Yes. And now it's not just happening to people who choose to put themselves in the public eye to share their work or share their messages. It can happen to anyone uh, who has a Twitter account or anyone who's gone woken up in the morning and gone, and gone viral on TikTok. Yeah, the threshold for who is considered a public figure has gotten very low. Yes. And so, yeah, th- there's, I think, probably a much larger group of people who experience this than there used to be. And it's a group of people who are less trained to deal with it because... I mean, honestly, I don't know, actually, mm-hmm. because I, I, I sort of have always assumed that like Hollywood actors, for example, g- get some kind of media training on like how to talk to the press and how to handle these situations. Maybe they don't. Maybe everyone in, in, all, in all of history has always been initially like, completely blindsided by this. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine that is especially true of, I don't know, you get famous on TikTok overnight. I think, I think most people have no idea how to handle that. You've also made an incredible video about envy, which I uh, actually, before I started a podcast, I'd written down so many notes just from your envy video in case I one day interviewed you. <laughs> and <laughs> it, you. yeah, it's it was so incredible to hear all of this stuff that um, I'd been feeling or experiencing in my life. And you'd really just connected all of the dots with envy. Um, can you talk about the tall poppy syndrome? Sure. Yeah. There's, I mean, our word ostracism comes from this like ancient Greek practice where uh, they would kind of have an election of citizens and they would simply vote someone off the island, vote someone out of this, out of the city state, and they would just be exiled for 10 years. There didn't need to be a reason. There, mm. there didn't need to be a crime that was committed. It was just, we're all kind of sick of this person. You're banished. Mm. Um, if someone's ego is getting too big, someone is sort of getting too prominent. I've just watched this pattern happen a lot of times where a community will sort of turn against someone as they sort of socially or economically rise above other people in the community. For example, this happens a lot with like indie music scenes, right? Yes. When when there's this kind of solidarity in being obscure and not making any money. Yeah. And then when someone starts to get more mainstream recognition, everyone's like, oh, well, okay. If you think that you're better than us, like there's this resentment of them. I think it's a very understandable and very human feeling to have a kind of complicated and negative feelings about someone doing better than you. But I also think that because it's kind of an ugly feeling, Mm. there's sort of this denial of envy where instead of just working through the feeling, people feel a need to like rationalize the feeling. Yes. And intellectualize it and make Mm -hmm. it about morals. Yeah. So it comes out (laughs) as this this like this search for a reason for the negativity. And so they start condemning this person based on, I don't know, these sort of moral transgressions that often aren't really proportionate to the level of negativity that's being directed Mm -hmm. at them. And that's when it makes me ask like, okay, well, what's this really about? Because no one gets that mad about this tweet or whatever. Yeah. And then the people that say this kind of stuff, I don't like this person because Mm -hmm. I read this Twitter thread about them or they're not a good person, whatever. It's always some kind of vague or or the word problematic. If you're stamped with the word problematic. The the vaguest of words, yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's like this... this, this branding and then it's almost just never really questioned after that and you go oh actually what what was it that they did and and I think that we've got so 
good and so clever with our words at intellectualizing our jealousy and intellectualizing these feelings instead of acknowledging them for what they are and making up these moral reasons about why we don't like someone because that sounds good then we can like commiserate with other people about why we don't like them instead of just being honest yeah and i think that's a very normal human thing to do like i think mm-hmm. that people have always kind of done this type of relational aggression where you gossip about someone, the group chat turns against a person for a day. And it's just like this vent for people's frustrations with each other. But when you take that onto social media, instead of being private, that stuff becomes public. And Mm -hmm. like the person can see you saying it, other people can see you saying it, they can quote tweet it and spread it around. So it sort of gets out of hand very quickly in a way that I think it doesn't when it's just at the level of like whisper network and gossip. So what what you said then, relational aggression, I agree. It's like relational aggression that you would experience in high school or in group chats on steroids. Can you talk about what relational aggression is? Um, So relational aggression is, I guess, a kind of like indirect aggression where you sort of use social pressure to kind of take out your hostility towards a person. So, mm. you know, you you sort of trash talk them to your friends. You it's like a kind of subtle bullying, I guess. It's very covert, isn't it? Yeah. It's 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 more covert aggression and passive. And I feel like, like mean girls. Mean girls. Yeah, I was yeah. just about to say it's the perfect <laughs> example of it. It's the exclusion, it's the rumor spreading, it's the yeah. joining the the more powerful party for your own protection. It's um instead of directly telling someone or working through your feelings, it's communicating that through exile, communicating that through rumors spread about a person. Do you think that that's something we need to accept or are there ways that we can work through relational aggression, even just on a small scale? I mean, I think one thing that's helped me is to kind of, I guess I'm just very interested in psychology in general, Mm -hmm. but I find that it helps me not be that person (laughs) if I can kind of try to be a little bit more in touch with my own feelings and to talk about my feelings instead of talking about the person. And this is usually work that needs to be done in private and not on Twitter, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, th- and that's another unfortunate aspect of this is like on social media, I see a lot of people sort of working through a lot of stuff in a very public way that wow. should probably yeah. be worked through in private. And that I would say probably includes feelings like this person I used to consider part of my you know, niche communities now getting mainstream success. And I feel really angry about it. But I think it's a, it's good to talk about the feeling instead of talking about the person. Um, I don't know. I feel that that's helpful to me. Yeah, that leads me on to, I really want to talk to you about proximity envy, mm-hmm. because I feel like what you're talking about there with someone as part of a niche community, whether that's an online community, someone you've been a fan of since day one, or it's your best friend or someone you know, I feel like that's the niche brand of proximity envy, which you talk about in the video. Could you talk some more about that? Yeah. So you're sort of more likely to feel envious about someone who is socially closer to you than you are about someone who's like just sort of in a completely different category. So suppose that you go to a kind of low income high school and then one person from that high school like goes to Harvard Law. The other people who went to that high school are more likely to be envious of that person than they are of someone who was just born into vast wealth and privilege because okay. you're not as likely to compare yourself to the king like <laughs> as as you are to like someone who was 
you know, you're equal. That's something that manifests in a lot of different ways. And, and you know, women are tend to be more envious towards other women. I think that queer people are more envious towards other queer people. Yes. I yeah. think that across any number of, of categories, self-published authors are more envious of other self-published authors. Like, like mm-hmm. you, you could apply this to any group, but people sort of form their own sense of self-worth, their own ego. It doesn't come from some kind of absolute inner place. It comes from comparing yourself with other people. Um, so in a way, like someone doing better than you is kind of threatening because it causes you to to feel worse about yourself. And to, re- and to resist that feeling is work, I think. I think the kind of default easy option is to resent people for, for making you feel bad about yourself. Yes. And then I feel like also, um, if you're someone who wants to do better for yourself, mm-hmm. it's knowing that it will ruffle the feathers of all the people around you that can actually stop you from growing because of the guilt. And then once you finally get to that place of growth and self self actualization, or you, you've you've been offered the job of your dreams, or you've moved away from a city that all of your friends want to move away from, or whatever it is, you typically see it with like small towns and communities, like you said. Yeah. Um, then that's when the guilt comes in. Who does she think she is? Yeah. Uh, you've changed all, all of this stuff to like claw people back. It's the, have you heard of the the crabs in a bucket syndrome? No, no. So it's 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 a bit like the tall poppy syndrome where. If you collect crabs in a bucket at sea, they can all help each other escape the bucket. They can just use their pincers and help each other climb out and they can all get to safety. But they don't do that. If one crab tries to escape the bucket, they work collectively to pull the crab down so that they all have a collective demise instead of freeing each other. And I feel like this is um, what you spoke about in your video as well with the uh, if I can't have it, you can't. And that yeah. analogy, which appears in nature with crabs, happens in these communities with the proximity envy as well. I, I'm surprised I never heard that expression before because that's exactly the, the dynamic that I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it happens in nature too. And I yeah. think that it's um, bound to be exaggerated and put on steroids on social media because there's also now this social currency attached to saying things about people. And there's a social currency attached to gathering in these like groups of negativity, like a a negative cohesion with people over someone. And I think, yeah, that there's more of an incentive to do it now. And it's, it's hard to catch yourself out when you're doing it, when you're being rewarded socially and you think that it's not affecting the person on the other side. Yeah. When in addition to the envious urges and in addition to the, you know, the sort of sense of threat to your, to your own ego, you also have all these additional incentives to stack on by social media. The fact that popular person X is a terrible person, here's my evidence or whatever, is like a great way to get attention. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's just a recipe for just maximum toxicity. What's your relationship been then with choosing what to share with social media and choosing what to keep private for yourself because I've I've grown to learn that actually the better my life is the happier I am the more I want to protect it and not share as much have you had that experience or have you have you fluctuated I go through like okay it's safe to share now oh no back in I go and I kind of fluctuate with what I feel comfortable sharing online particularly when it comes to my feelings and my life Absolutely. I think I share less than ever at the moment, um, which I think is a good sign. <laughs> yeah, I, me too. Yeah. I yeah. think um, some of it is, is is that I do have the sense of like sharing too much, it's sort of giving people more things to attack you with. I've noticed the same thing in myself that when things are going well in my life, 
I have like less of an urge to post about it. So, um, you know, like since the beginning of this year, I've been in a happy relationship. I've noticed that's really caused me to post less. I think yes, I, yes. I, All the happiest people yeah. are just like not on Instagram. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I think I just completely didn't realize before, like how to what extent I was kind of using Instagram as like a dating profile. Oh without, my god! Without, don't without even understanding, <laughs> like without even understanding, I was doing that. Like, yes, I, I absolutely was doing that yeah. as well without mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I'm not single, and so I don't. I don't care how many likes my selfies get. Like. Because that's, it's, it's like I was using that as like a substitute, like romantic relationship. That's. Yes. Ugh, wow. Like the validation yeah. machine. And, that, val- and now yeah. and now you're receiving it uh, with a person. Yeah. When you're receiving love offline, you sort of don't have this like, this like need to, <laughs> this needed for people to tell you that you're beautiful and good. Don't you think it's yeah. to be seen though? So, so like, yeah. if, even whether it's like you want people to think you're beautiful or you want people to, I think it's also about being seen. And then perhaps when you get into a healthy relationship or you're dating someone, there's someone who's seeing you. The way I've experienced it is like, it's being witnessed. So if you're doing something uh, or you're creating something or you look good, whatever, it's about being witnessed and not wanting to miss that chance to be witnessed. So if you're, if you're looking good or whatever, maybe you'd upload a selfie and put it on Instagram because you're not around anyone, you want people to see you. But then if you have someone with you to, again, appreciate that beauty or appreciate the look that you've put together or to compliment you, whatever it is, yeah. you're getting that in person. And so I guess maybe maybe it switches. I don't know. Yeah, you can send them the selfie or like, yeah. <laughs> the, the, I don't know, the amazing looking food that you cooked. Like you, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be posted to social media because, but yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's so true. Like, what she said about witnessing like yeah people people want their acts to be recorded like yes did it even yeah. happen did i wake up at 7 a.m if i didn't put the fucking timestamp right. on my instagram story yes saying- no <laughs> right I, I need it's like in um like mad max fury road where they say like witness me and like yes. yeah you need yes. like you need to be seen being virtuous <laughs> yes and it's like again the pictures or it didn't happen yeah that, that kind of feeling but there's definitely I, I've seen it with friends who stop posting and it's because they're so happy um and life has never looked so good for them they don't need the validation from other people to see that their life is good because they know their life is good and other and the person they're with can see their life is good it's very funny because I think people tend to think the opposite like I think Instagram <sighs> is like such an envy generating machine and like people think that the people validation posting they get I mean I think some people get very irritated by that because it's like it's like you're showing off your life but people who are showing off their life I mean unless they're like doing it professionally Mm. usually are doing it because there's some kind of insecurity like some kind of void that they need to fill proving yeah otherwise they wouldn't need to do this like please like see me being successful kind of thing right like yes I don't know you don't need to be seen being successful if you're like really at peace with where you are It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and 
What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, Natalie, there's also an amazing, completely original analogy that you've used in your video on MV about uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Can you please explain it? Yes. So, most of my favorite episodes of SpongeBob are the ones that are about the relationship between SpongeBob and Squidward. My interpretation is that Squidward is fundamentally an envious character. Like that's why he acts the way he acts. Um, he's a sort of frustrated artist who works in fast food, but plays the clarinet and does painting and <laughs> sculpture and like is feels under-recognized, underappreciated. And so he sort of resents and envies SpongeBob's happiness, his sort of spontaneous creativity. Yeah, I see, I see, I see Squidward as kind of this the patron saint of envy almost in the cartoon world. <laughs> yeah, and you, there's that scene, isn't there, where he's he's chiseling the piece of marble and he's working at it for ages and ages and ages and he can't make a figure from it. And then SpongeBob comes along and just hits the chalk of the block of marble and then out comes this gorgeous sculpture. And I feel like that that particularly has your theory applied to it entirely where SpongeBob is spontaneous and just comes along and does it with joy. And Squidward presents him a lot more, kind of looking at him from his house, scowling. I also feel that because it's a cartoon and you can show things in this like really unrealistic way, I feel like the way that SpongeBob is able to chisel Michelangelo's David in five seconds, <laughs> that's like, that's, I see that as like how Squidward, how an envious person would perceive a successful yes. person, right? Oftentimes that's not actually how it is, right? The person does work hard. From, through the eyes of an envious person, success looks effortless. Yes. It's so not fair, right? And unattainable. Mm, and unattainable. As the, yeah, unattainable and something that is just innate to that person. And I guess that's probably where also the resentment comes from, isn't it? In the, oh, that could never be me. Because yeah. you've not seen the... The, whatever the phrase is, uh, an overnight success is 10 years in the making or something. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You've spoke about how in cultures that aren't westernized, how they will actually conceal their wealth because to be envied is to put yourself in the way of harm. You put a target on your back. And in Western culture, we, we typically like to flash our wealth. We get the flashy car, all of this kind of stuff. Could you talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think even within Western cultures, there's a lot of variation as to like what the norm is for how like how acceptable it is to be a show off. I think this is actually becoming less common on social media as people I think are sort of starting to become aware of this. And I think part of it is that like you're really just inviting trouble when you do that, right? This is the evil eye. I, I mean, I think I think America is especially has a lack of awareness about mm. well, because look, in America, there's sort of traditionally that this sort of ideology of like individualism, that people who succeed deserve it, that, uh, you know, anyone can succeed with hard work. We can argue about how true or not that is. But I think a result of that is a lot of Americans like sort of don't have this <laughs> sense that like maybe like talking about how much money you make, for example, is not a yes. good idea. Um, yes. Yeah. And where, whereas I think most other cultures outside of America, it's not even just non-Western, it's just most people have common sense that you don't talk about how much money you make because you, you just, you're inviting trouble. You're inviting 
uh, the evil eye into your house. Like when, when you sort of brag about how well you're doing or you sort of, you're flexing on social media or whatever, people are, are going to look at you with resentment. Mm. And yeah. I, I don't know that I necessarily think that there's a literal like magical component to this of like, you know, you're going to be cursed with the evil eye. But I do think that like that description sort of summarizes a real thing. Like mm. I think that people envying you, it's trouble one way or another, right? When lots of people resent you, like it can come out with them talking about you behind your back. They have more motivation now to gossip about you, to try to sort yeah. of cut you down a level. There was in the early era of social media, a really damaging lack of awareness about this on, on the part of a lot of influencers. Yeah, I think it's also, and what's interesting is how much we allow for women and men to brag differently. So I've always struggled with where's the line for me between being proud of my success and bragging. I'm all for women particularly expressing and asserting their worth in rooms and knowing their worth. But then I think there's this line of, I've never really known where that line is because I'm someone who would typically shrink. So saying my accomplishments just as a factual statement would have felt like bragging, you know? I do. I definitely feel that. I th I, I agree. Also, there's a, a gender difference where women, I think, are sort of encouraged to be more egalitarian-minded than men. We're, and humble. We're, we're, yeah, and humble. Yeah. You're like, well, I think maybe very early on, I was like, because I was so insecure about my place in the world that I would tend to say more about my accomplishments, but I like pretty quickly realized that, well, that's not helping me. And people think it's sure, really, wow. some people, a lot of people think it's really annoying. So I think now I kind of keep very quiet about it because I just don't want people to hate me. <laughs> and like, yes. I, I have this like fear. <laughs> I, it just feels safer to keep quiet. Okay, Natalie, so my listeners have been in touch with some questions. Can you give me a hand answering them? I'll do my best. Okay, here's one. Why am I feeling jealous and hateful of my boyfriend's ex-girlfriend? Is this something that I can control or is this totally normal? Well, I think it's common enough. Lots of people are jealous of their partner's exes. Without knowing more about a specific situation, I would be reluctant to offer a full psychoanalysis. Yeah. <laughs> but like the, like the kind of common reasons for those feelings are you worry that the ex has something that you don't or mm. jealousy often comes from this like fundamental fear of like loss. You're afraid of losing your partner and exes, their exes sort of represent that they have other possibilities. And so that it, it makes you insecure about your importance in this person's life. The same kind of thing that helps with detaching a little bit from anxiety about what people say about you online comes with jealousy. Um, you know, you care deeply about a relationship with someone and you want to cling to that. Like you want to protect mm. it. You want to possess, but that kind of clinging, it's kind of like a Buddhist thinking, but like clinging to your desires and clinging to your sort of attachments generates pain for you. So mm. you sort of have to accept that your partner's with you now and then they're not yeah. with the exes. So And then it's it's often the behavior that's driven by the insecurity and the jealousy that would drive the partner away from you long term. I'm not saying immediately it's so normal yeah. to be jealous of ex-partners and and other people whatever Th those feelings are so normal. And I think you you said this, you said you don't have to endorse every feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said that. It's 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 okay to have feelings and be like 
this is not, you know, this is not the most flattering feeling to have. This is not a helpful feeling, but we all have those feelings. And I think that sort of like trying to sort of understand where they come from and is the feeling telling you something useful? If you can learn that and then try try to internalize it, that can help. If it's not telling you anything useful, then it's probably best to work on minimizing the feeling. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Thank you. The next question here Do you think envy can be a way of identifying what you want? Is there a difference between jealousy and envy? And do you feel like that comes into this distinction here? So there is like an academic distinction, um, but often jealousy is understood about relationships. There's three people involved in jealousy. There's you, the the jealous person. There's the person you're in a relationship with who you want to protect. That and then there's the person who threatens that relationship. So like a triangle. Um, it's a triangle, yeah. So jealousy yeah. is a triangle. Envy is a straight line. Where it's just oh, eyes. Okay. Envy is just like I resent this person for for what they have that I don't. Okay. And then so the person's question is: Do you think envy is a way of identifying what you want? It absolutely can be. Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Well, if you suddenly find yourself overcome with negative feelings for a person who published a book. <laughs> you might want to publish a book, you know, like yes. I, I think that's, that's kind of a difficult way to find out, but recontextualizing your, your feelings of envy as like, you know, understanding that this discomfort is showing me something about what I want. Um, yeah. because I'm feeling this pain of not having what this person has. That's, that sort of tells you something mm. about your, your own desire. Yeah. Your, your, your phrase, I can't remember what it was exactly word for word, but you just said something about about not every feeling needs to be endorsed yeah and having that having that word do not endorse all of your feelings has helped me also because you can have them but you don't have to act on them immediately you can give yourself a little beat you can think about it you can phone a friend you can sleep on it whatever um I think that's actually something that's really helped me yeah a feeling can be real but not true if that makes sense like, yes. you know, you're allowed to have feelings, even feelings that are sort of <laughs> irrational or petty or like difficult, but not every feeling is communicating something that's true about the world. It could be telling you something that's true about yourself instead, you know, assuming that yeah. every feeling that you have about another person is really about that person. That's not a good way to think because most of the time it's probably largely not about that person. <laughs> yes. Right. It's about what they mean to you. Okay. Let's end on this question. What's one tip that you have on managing or controlling feelings of envy or jealousy? Let's end on one tip. There's there's sort of two kinds of envy. One is a sort of admiring envy, which is maybe this is how you learn what you want. And I think that this tends to be a little bit painful or uncomfortable, but it, it can be really useful. So I'm an amateur piano player. And when I listen to someone who's way better than me at piano, I do feel a little bit of that, like, oh, okay, well, okay, be amazing then. But like that kind of, that kind of, that kind of petty envy. But it honestly, for me, it's a sort of healthy envy because I, I also admire that. And I appreciate like people who are great musicians so much. And it makes me want to sit at the piano and play more. So that's good. But if instead it's making you, okay, I guess I'll just never play piano again then. If it's going to, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of more toxic resentment envy. If you can notice like which of the two it is, I don't know, if looking at a certain person's social media feed, for example, is causing you, it's like almost like self-harm emotional mm. self-harm it makes you it makes your mind feel like sludge yeah. and it's weighing you down and it's just not not productive envy then like don't look at that 
like you can just you can just mute people you know don't mm. don't indulge the urge to pick at a wound it's a drain on on your energy and yes. it's it's sort of keeping you from reaching your own potential however that might compare to other people Oh my God, that was such an incredible conversation. And all of the listener questions that you sent in for Natalie and I to answer, I have learned so much from those alone. Her last point there about whether the envy is productive for you or not, and whether to endorse those feelings. I'm feeling so energized after that conversation and there's a lot I've taken away from it. I can't wait to listen back to it, actually. She's so fucking wise. You should all check out her video on envy. We did a pretty deep dive in this episode, but she goes even deeper on her YouTube channel, which is called ContraPoints on YouTube. You should definitely check her out. She's fucking amazing. Thank you so much again to Natalie for joining me today and to all of you for listening. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at ContraPoints. If you've enjoyed listening, then please do share it with your friends. To keep updated with all of the latest episodes as they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, we want to hear from you. Every month, we'll be taking your calls, your texts, and your voice notes for our call-in episode. We'll be discussing topics around money, relationships, queerness, body image, all kinds of stuff. If you'd like to ask a question or speak to my guest and I, please get in touch on WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. And don't forget you can join me every week for Ask Floss where I answer all of your questions from building confidence with your body hair to setting relationship boundaries and even my preference on cats or dogs. It's cats. Subscribe to Extra Floss to listen right now. Visit extrafloss.com to start your free trial and get access wherever you listen to your podcast. Or you can visit exactly on Apple Podcasts and hit try free at the top of the page. And a massive thank you to the incredible Black Honey who composed the original theme music for the show. They're fucking amazing. You can find them on Instagram at, at BlackHoneyUK and you can check out their latest album written and directed. This is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. My producer is Millie Charles, assistant producer is Ella McLeod, executive producer is Carly Mayo, and the production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And I want to give a special thanks to Chris Skinner, Jonathan Imieri, Ryan O'Meara and Teddy Riley for additional production. And thanks to our engineers, Jay Beale, Josh Gibbs and mix engineer Gulliver Tickle. <laughs>